We want our children to have the best chance to live fulfilling lives. But can you keep up with all the books and scientific research on parenting and fit the information into your own philosophy on how to raise kids? Welcome to Your Parenting Mojo, the podcast that does the work for you by investigating and examining respectful, research-based parenting tools to help kids thrive. Now, welcome your host, Jen Lumenlon. Hello and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today I'd like to welcome my guest Wendell Hanna, who is Professor of Music Education at San Francisco State University. Professor Hanna's academic background includes a BA from the University of South Florida and a Master's in Music from Yale University in Orchestral Bassoon Performance. After several years of teaching and performing in the San Francisco Bay Area orchestras as a freelance musician, Professor Hanna then obtained her public school and teaching credential and taught elementary music in the Oregon public schools before obtaining a PhD at the University of Oregon. It was there that she shifted her attention to younger children and began researching and working musically with infants, toddlers, and preschool-aged children. In 2002, she was offered a professorship at San Francisco State University, where she researches and also teaches early childhood musical development in local preschools. It was through teaching in a local corporate preschool that she encountered emergent learning and the Reggio approach. Now, I discovered Professor Hannah's work not long after I heard a piece on NPR about the links between listening to music and learning grammar, so I was already looking for someone to talk with about the connections between music and child development. But today, dear listeners, we're going to get so much more than that. Professor Hannah has just published a new book called The Children's Music Studio, a Reggio-inspired approach. And as soon as I read it, I knew that I had to ask her to do an interview with us because her interest coincides so neatly with my own. She brings a really rigorous evidence-based view on the impacts of music on a child's development. And she's also studied early childhood education in Reggio Emilia, Italy, as I've done as well, and wants to bring that evidence-based view of music to Reggio-inspired classrooms. Welcome, Dr. Hannah. Thank you, Jen. Thank you for inviting me. So I wonder if we can start kind of probably where parents already have had some exposure to information about music and related to child development. Can you tell us what is the Mozart effect and how does what parents might have heard about it differ from what the study actually found? Sure. So the Mozart effect was a research study and there have been many more research studies since the original one, which was in 1993 in uh, Southern California, Rosher and Associates. And they, they looked at the effect of listening to a Mozart music and how that affected learning. And their results were published in Nature magazine. And they said that, especially on spatial reasoning and a little bit on memory, that Listening to Mozart had positive effects on your ability to concentrate and learn. Fortunately, people got very excited about this, <laughs> especially in my field of music education. We were like, hallelujah, this is what we've been looking for, scientific evidence of what we've always known to be true, and here it is. However, researchers, we were like, wow, let me look into this research, and then we discovered, wow, they listened to some Mozart for 15 minutes, and <laughs> then they became smarter. Hmm... Let's replicate this <laughs> just to make 
sure. Mm -hmm. And so it was replicated many, many, many times, and the same results were not found. And that's a problem with research. It needs to be replicated, and the same results need to be found each time or most of the times that it is replicated. Hmm. So that was a problem. Many people have really jumped on the idea of Mozart makes you smarter because it feels true. It just feels so right. It's so esoteric, Um, isn't it? (laughs) It must be making me smarter. (laughs) So it's actually fascinating from a researcher's point of view that something that you know is right, you just haven't been able to prove yet. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what the Mozart effect was about is just pure listening. And so there's been a ton of research and neurological research and other types of research about this. And so I would say the take-home point is that the Mozart effect is really likely to be an artifact of just arousal Mm. because you're listening to the music and it makes you feel better. It heightens your mood. Mm -hmm. So that's probably what the Mozart effect is. You feel happier when you listen to Mozart and you feel a little more alert Mm. and your brain is a little more stimulated. So those effects that were tested are likely because of that and have nothing to do with our dear friend Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. (laughs) The many other types of light and happy music that would have that same effect on your short-term effect. Okay. And so this study was also done with college students, right? It was done many, many times. Okay. People have been replicating it many different ways since 1993. Sometimes it comes out positive, but most of the time it doesn't get strong statistical results because it just has to do with listening. Mm -hmm. And the real research is more when you're doing active music making, especially playing instruments. Okay. All right. So let us all be warned about the dangers of reading one study and (laughs) basing our entire approach to parenting on that. So, okay. So if I'm a failure as a parent and I have not had my child listening to baby Mozart for the last couple of years, I'm curious about how children approach music if nobody's teaching them about it. Do they have some kind of innate sense of rhythm and a desire to produce music or are those things more culturally learned? Well, yes, children have an innate ability in music, just exactly the way that they have an innate ability to learn language. So there's a really interesting study that came out of the child study movement in the early 20th century called the Moorhead and Pond Study. It was done between 1937 and 1948. Wow. And it's fascinating because it's a more of a longitudinal, not that long, but pretty long for a study. Mm-hmm. And they had children go into a room with beautiful musical instruments and by themselves with other children. And they videotape. I guess they videotaped. Did they have that then? <laughs> anyway, they observed mm-hmm. and they analyzed what the children did. And they found that these children were understanding music without any adult supervision. They were creating music. They were understanding form. They were interacting. They were improvising. They were singing, creating their own original compositions and some pretty amazing stuff. So I would say that's a real seminal study. And there have been many others that have shown that children left to their own devices are extremely musically, naturally musical. Mm -hmm. And where do you think that comes from? Well, it's evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what what purpose does it serve? <laughs> well, there's a lot of uh, theories on that. Uh-huh. 
there's definitely music is definitely kind of brings the tribe together. Uh, uh, it makes you feel more uh, secure and protected. It gives you a, and, and this answers your <laughs> your second part of the question, which is about cultural uh, uh, learned whether mm-hmm. music is culturally learned, but it, it helps you identify with your culture. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, children they have an innate nature to respond to music, but there is a natural development that is occurring. And that natural development can be further enhanced with exposure, parents exposing them to a wide variety of music, as Mm -hmm. well as direct instruction. So it's kind of, there's an innate ability and children can do it on their own. But if adults give a very rich environment and exposure to music and some direct instruction, then that is really, really heightened because there's so many neuronal connections in the brain for all kinds of learning. And as we'll talk a little bit more, language learning and music learning really start out as one and the same Hmm. in the baby, and then it splits later on. So if you're encouraging language development, you're also encouraging musical development. And if you're encouraging music development, you're also encouraging some language development. Okay. I, <laughs> I'm i wondering what my daughter is learning from the Maroon 5 music that she has a preference for at the moment. <laughs> She's um, a lot, yes. Yeah, I'm sure she is, although I hesitate to imagine what. So you, you mentioned a couple of times as you were explaining that, that if parents provide direct instruction as well as exposure to a different kinds of music, what do you mean by direct instruction in that format? Well, purposeful interaction for music's sake if you take them to a, a child parent class, um, the music together classes are very popular here in the mm-hmm. Bay Area and I think all over yeah. the country now. And those are wonderful classes. But there's a variety of music. The children are playing instruments. You know, it's it's tactile. It's locomotor. They're jumping up and down and they're moving and they're they're singing and they're just participating in music with others and with adults and not passive, not just listening to music in the background. Okay. Okay. All right. So now really starting to dig into the research here, I want to try and untangle what some of the research says on the benefits to children of being involved in music, because I read through a bunch of abstracts of papers on this topic, and you kind of get the impression that music is absolutely incredible at promoting children's cognitive development. But then when you dig into the methodology and the results, you find things like Children who attend music classes are able to look at a pattern of beads and replicate it from memory more effectively than children who didn't attend classes. And that kind of skill does have good implications for visual memory and chunking of information, both of which are very important in reading. But there was also no difference between the two groups on the other five subtests of a well-known intelligence test. But the abstract of that study says, this study suggests a significant correspondence between early music instruction and spatial temporal reasoning abilities. <laughs> so I'm wondering, based on what you know of kind of the totality of the literature and not just honing in on one study's results, is there a benefit to a child's development from making music? And what kind of music does the child have to do to gain this benefit? Well, I would really recommend this wonderful book. It's very easy to read by Daniel Leventon. He's a neurologist uh, up in Canada, and it's called This Is Your Brain on Music. And it really is fantastic. And what he really says is that when anyone is participating in music, every area 
of the brain lights up in what he terms as a neuronal symphony. And so the phenomenon of music is incredibly complex, even though from our first person perspective, we just like hear music and go, oh, I want to tap and I want to dance and makes me happy. And that's how children enjoy and understand and appreciate music. It's a very simple, natural response that, I mean, you've seen with your own daughter, I'm sure, <laughs> you put on a little music and even Number though five. <laughs> right. And even if a child can't walk, they're bopping, they're holding yeah. on to something and they're yeah. moving. I mean, this is, they call that entrainment. And so we just naturally entrain where the no other creature does this type of entrainment other than humans. And so this is just a wonderful, natural thing to do. But when you look from a third person perspective of a neurologist, and you actually look at the brain and you say, well, what's going on? Then it becomes extremely complex. And you see that there is this complex coordination of neural systems almost everywhere in the brain because there's each aspect of music. And I go into more detail in my book about these uh, different aspects of music use a completely different specialized area of the brain process that. And then for it to all come together as one holistic experience of what we consider music, it takes a lot of coordination from all these different brain processing parts. So melody information is processed in one area. Rhythmic information is processed in a completely different area. Timbre is processed in another area. I mean, these are not, these are all over the brain. And so it's the form of the music, the meaning, the referential meaning of the words of the song, you know, then the limbic system is uh, processing certain emotional aspects of the music. So there's so much going on. So what evidently has been observed in some of the latest research is that children who study music, especially a musical instrument, usually it's most noticed before the age of nine if they start. But you look at the adult brain and the corpus callosum, which is the the white connective tissue between the right and the left hemisphere, is much thicker in people who studied music at a young age. And so that, I think, is because there's so much interconnectivity between the hemispheres and between the different parts of the processing of music that's almost like a muscle mm -hmm. <laughs> because you're working out so much interconnectivity that this corpus callosum builds up like a thicker muscle and it, it stays throughout life. So it's hard to say that this one thing is benefited by early involvement in music. It's mm -hmm. more like your brain is just overall more fit especially in anything that's auditory in nature, because music is mostly auditory, but it's also psychomotor. So anything to have to do with your, your brain and your hands interacting or like language, which is, you know, it has to do with ability to listen and process sounds. Those in particular, they've tested through research that adults who studied music seriously as a child do much better on those types of tasks mm -hmm. throughout uh, life. Okay. And so I just want to go back to something you said about the corpus callosum and, and how that tends to be thicker in people who studied music as a child. And I'm wondering if there has been cause and effect established there or if it could be that people with thicker 
I don't know what the plural of corpus colossum is, <laughs> corpus colossi, uh, <laughs> are more inclined to study music. Has cause and effect been established so we can say directionality, which thing preceded what? Well, I mean, a caveat for all um, neuroscience is that it's so new. Yeah. <laughs> and everything is coming out, you know, fast and furious. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you can say yeah. once and for all. But from what I've looked at, yes, it is definitely a cause and effect from what they've they've studied. Okay. All right. And so <laughs> I'm just kind of drawing links between learning music and learning other subjects and People who listen to the show regularly will remember that I developed a course recently to help families decide whether homeschooling could be right for their family. And as part of doing that, I interviewed a really cool math tutor. (laughs) And I'll put a link in the references to where people can actually go and hear that. Uh, Because I technically did pretty well in math. I actually got an A in my high school exit exam in England. But I'm only good at math as long as the problem that I'm presented with looks exactly like the one that I was taught. And so I was thinking about the way that we teach math, which is basically to say, I know you don't know why I'm teaching you all these components and skills, but trust me, in the end, you're going to be able to use these to get into college and maybe one day you'll solve a problem using these skills. And what occurred to me is I realized the traditional way of teaching music is very much the same. We teach children how to read music and how to play each note. And we sort of say to them, you know, trust me, in the end, we're going to teach you skills and these are going to help you get into band. (laughs) And one day you might even express yourself using music. And that the way that you're describing teaching music is very different and we're going to get more into kind of what is a constructivist approach to education uh, music education uh, that children can start expressing themselves right now today right does the same parallel strike you absolutely absolutely and this is why i'm so excited about the reggio approach because it really is a educational approach that people are very excited about and i think it's a wonderful parallel to how music education needs to look at this idea. Mm-hmm. And there is a growing frac- a faction of the music education field that really feels that the old school methodology of band, orchestra, mm-hmm. choir, traditional piano lessons, where you have to practice and show your teacher how well you practice what they mm-hmm. gave you each week, and then they, they critique what you do. That's a very passive, the child is a empty vessel, <laughs> a, a passive uh-huh. learner, and the teacher is an expert, and they tell the child what they need to do. Yes, yeah, circle the flat and measure four, you missed it. Uh, don't miss it again. Now, that is not <laughs> a very creative methodology. Uh, luckily, we have these new, I know the Common Core is a very touchy controversial subject, subject <laughs> but the arts, new Common Core art standards are really actually moving in a more creative direction, mm-hmm. a less passive area. So I have some hope mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're moving in this direction. And the Reggio Children Research Division, uh, I don't know when you went, but this was a big thing when I went. It was about a year ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I think that you probably heard this too. They're very, very interested in expanding beyond preschool mm-hmm. and into elementary and secondary schools. So yeah. the, the Reggio approach is not considered an approach that is only appropriate for babies and toddlers and preschoolers. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think Italian education had been very traditional, hadn't it? And uh, <laughs> they're just now starting to think about what it might look like to expand this idea that the Italians are pretty much in love with too. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so, okay. So we've sort of alluded to this a number of times then. And and so listeners may remember that I actually interviewed Suzanne Axelson specifically about the Reggio Emilia approach in preschools. So if you've got the time to go back and listen to that episode, I'd highly recommend it. But I wonder if, Wendell, you wouldn't mind helping us to just briefly understand what are some of the main tenets of the Reggio Emilia approach to learning? Sure. Um, of course, I've been very focused on the arts element, but mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not an expert in the Reggio approach per se. I've just kind of dug into more the artistic aspects of it. Yeah. So, but what I would say is that the Reggio approach is a learning environment. It's not a method, a curriculum, or a technique. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you can't do Reggio. You can't be certified in mm-hmm. Reggio because every single environment is different. The children, the parents, the municipality is different. And so it's an approach that you bring to your own unique learning environment. So that's why schools are said to be inspired by the Reggio approach, but they are not Reggio schools. Mm-hmm. But that said, I'd say there's three really important aspects to that. And one is focusing on the child. The child is very, very central to uh, the Reggio approach. So the belief is that the child is an active constructor of knowledge. So they're not an empty vessel. They're a fully powered uh, ship (laughs) moving (laughs) on the waters. They're not, you know, uh, poor innocent things that need to be helped. They're very powerful learning beings. And they're also social. They're social creatures. They don't learn in a vacuum. They really need to be working with other people to learn. That's an important aspect of how they learn. And that a big part of the Reggie approach is that children have rights. It's not a privilege to learn. It's a right to be provided with as much opportunity and materials as possible. So that's the child. And then the role of the teacher is very different than the traditional teacher role. The teacher is not an expert. They are a collaborator. So being an expert, they're a what I say in my book is they're a co-learner. They're learning alongside the children. Now, at the same time, they're adults. You're an adult. <laughs> you do know more than children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you are a guide. You're a guide because you do know you've been down these roads before. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you don't just completely let the children off on their own. And and you're there to facilitate. So that means, you know, you want to provide materials and structures and resources for the children. And then the most unique aspect, I would say, of being a teacher in a Reggio environment or a parent that wants to instill that environment in their own home would be that you're a researcher, which I think is really interesting because I think most of your listeners will know about Piaget, Mm -hmm. one of the most famous early childhood researchers who didn't stick children into laboratories. <laughs> he just observed his own kids at home. Mm-hmm. His, smart, his sample size was a little suspect, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and yet that was a long time ago and nobody's really refuted what he observed in his mm-hmm. own children. Yeah. And so I think this is such a great thing. I mean, you you are a researcher. You're looking at the unique learning 
that is occurring in your children. And these, you know, you don't have to have a PhD Mm -hmm. (laughs) to observe and research and help your child learn. So as an adult, you're a a collaborator Mm -hmm. with the child. You're not an expert. And then the other aspect is that you may have heard of emergent curriculum, Mm -hmm. and that is an aspect of the Reggio approach. So the idea is that knowledge is emergent through socially constructed discoveries, and that this knowledge, this emergent knowledge is very diverse. It comes from many different areas. So it's not just math and or I'm doing science now or whatever. It may involve many different areas all coming together. And so with all these different areas coming together, then you get this meaningful whole. So it's a little bit messy mm-hmm. <laughs> because traditional education, you know, you can say, oh, they're learning math, they're mm-hmm. learning science, they're learning reading, you know, they're learning music. But really Reggie approach says that, you know, it's, there are no boundaries between learning areas, mm-hmm. that everything can kind of interweave and commingle within this type of approach. But the part that I like the best <laughs> is that the Reggie approach really emphasizes the arts. Mm. And so this is what fascinated me. Unfortunately, it has focused for the last 40 years primarily <laughs> on the visual arts. Mm-hmm. So their adage is that a child has over a hundred languages. And those of you that know the theory of multiple intelligences, uh, which is uh, Howard Gardner's theory from Harvard Education Graduate School, he was very good friends with Malaguzzi and traveled to the Reggio schools. And so there are actually a lot of parallels. And I think they really came together with this thought that the arts in particular are a very rich and deep and creative and complex way of understanding and expressing the world because there's emotion and there's nonverbal content within the arts. So that's my favorite part of the Reggio approach. (laughs) And so my research has been, okay, how can we look at what they've done with, I mean, the things, and as you know, you've seen the work of these children in Mm -hmm. the art studios, which are called the ateliers that are so sophisticated. And you're like, preschoolers could not have possibly done this work. And it's like, wow. And so for me, I'm like, well, gee, in their philosophy, they say that any, there's over a hundred languages. So music should certainly be one of those languages, even though it hasn't really been developed to that extent. So my research has really been, you know, how can we look at what the Reggie approach has done with uh, visual arts and then apply it to music? Mm. Okay. Wow. You you said a lot that was so interesting in that piece. I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned and you, you talked about Piaget. And yes, no, nobody has really sort of said that what Piaget found was not accurate. Although I will say that I think there's a general agreement that children tend to reach stages earlier than Piaget might have acknowledged. So mm-hmm. I just want to, to put that out there. But tying together a couple of points that you mentioned, you mentioned this concept, socially constructed knowledge. And separately from that, but related to it, the idea that the teacher is is not necessarily and doesn't have to be an expert, which I think can be very empowering for parents who are thinking about music and thinking, well, I don't know anything about music. You know, speaking personally, I took piano lessons when I was, 
I don't know, seven and, <laughs> and I can play the recorder pretty well. I can still play Christmas carols, <laughs> but I don't really know anything more about music than that. And I just want to kind of bring that full circle and say that, is it right that because the Reggio approach sees knowledge as socially constructed, that that is okay. And that I still bring something useful and valid, but also my daughter brings something that's useful and valid. Can you help us think through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, we were all once children, right? <laughs> I think I so, think, yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes we over we overthink, mm. you know, that we have to sing well or have taken mm-hmm. piano lessons or have some background. But children don't really care if you're singing in tune and they don't really care if you know every ballet step or can read Shakespeare and understand it. They just want to experience music and explore and interact. So many adults just feel like, oh, I, that ship sailed. I quit piano lessons when I was eight. Why uh-huh. did I do that? Why did my parents <laughs> make me? I should have done it. Now I could play Mozart. But, <laughs> and then know, my and kid then, would be a genius. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah. And so they feel like, you know, that, that that's over for them. And it's mm. not over. We can always learn music, right? Mm -hmm. And the children are really programmed just as they are to learn language, they're programmed to learn music. And there's a natural development that occurs. So if you just follow along with so if your child is into Maroon 5, is that what you said? Yes, I did. You you don't sound like you've heard of them. (laughs) I'm shocked at this lack of knowledge on your part of an essential component of the musical canon. (laughs) I am am shamed. You are right. Yeah, she's interested that. Now, Mm -hmm. in traditional like music learning, we would steer our children away from that because it should be Mozart, it Mm -hmm. should be proper, or it should be children's developmentally appropriate music. But the Reggie approach would disagree with that. Mm -hmm. Your daughter is into Maroon 5. Mm -hmm. And so you want to explore that with her. So you would put the music on and ask her some questions. You put on your researcher hat and you Mm -hmm. say, wow, what do you like about this? Tell me. And you listen to what she says. And and maybe she says, because it makes me dance like a rabbit. Okay. Mm. I don't know. What what does she say? Have you asked her that? I have not asked her that actually. And I wonder, and I know I noticed this when I was reading your book, that sometimes you acknowledge that when you asked a child a question about music, they didn't always give you an answer. And mm-hmm. I wonder, because when you read the books about Reggio, they, the children are always amazingly eloquent and they always have some kind of answer to the question. You're like, I don't think my kid would say that. <laughs> <laughs> but you actually acknowledge uh, that you didn't always get an answer when you asked a child about that. And, and so I haven't asked, to be honest, and I wonder what I would get. And what would you do if she didn't say anything? I would ask a different question. Okay. Or I would suggest, oh, why don't we put on, you know, why don't we make our own music video? Mm-hmm. What types of costumes shall we wear? Mm-hmm. And you're always opening up avenues to find out how they're thinking. So if one door doesn't open up, you you suggest another. So that's where the researcher hat really mm-hmm. comes in. Uh, you're guiding, but you don't know what the answer will be. And yeah. if there is no answer, then you guide in a different direction and see if, if it uh, happens. And if, say, for instance, she says, I'm very interested in the bass guitar uh-huh. for some reason, right? And you're like, what's a bass guitar? And then, you know, you could 
bone up on that and maybe learn more, maybe find something that's like a bass guitar. She was fascinated with that Mm -hmm. and then bring those materials in and then explore that area. So it's really letting the child be the leader and you're learning along. So maybe you don't know about something that they're interested in, then you can learn. You're learning along with them. So you don't have to be an expert. Yeah. And as you were talking through that, I was thinking about something I remembered actually that I saw while I was in Reggio Emilia and just thinking about parents who say, but I can't even read music. (laughs) How am I going to support my child's interest in music? And the children, I guess they were probably aged around four in this particular classroom that we watched in a video, were inventing their own musical notation. Mm-hmm. And so they would draw squiggles on the page and the whole thing was a line from, mm-hmm. from the start of the piece to the end of the piece. And where mm-hmm. it got squiggly, they would introduce a certain kind of music and they would draw a stop sign to indicate, you know, everybody would stop for a second and then they would mm-hmm. start playing again. And the line kind of meandered slowly around the page until it got to its end point in the lower right corner. And... I think they might have played it differently every time they went through it, but (laughs) they probably got more consistent as they went through it again and again. And they had the opportunity to kind of redraft it and give new interpretations to it. But I, as a parent who have the vaguest recollection of musical notation from, you know, elementary level recorder playing could probably figure out how to draw music in a squiggly line on a page. Right. And so Mm -hmm. the, the absence of that kind of knowledge I think parents should not see that as a limiter, right? Oh, no, of course not. Of course not. I mean, what's interesting about that, because I observed the same thing when I was in Reggio Emilia, Italy. The children have been so adept at visual arts, Mm. and they're so able to express themselves with drawing, with using visual arts materials, Mm -hmm. that they're very able to translate what they hear into drawing something. What I would love to would be to see the opposite, you know, could they read something or see a picture and then translate that visual thing into music? Mm-hmm. So that would be the other side of the language. I mean, you really want children to master all of these, what they term as languages or mm-hmm. abilities and conceptual understandings. And it's not to become a prodigy. It's just to have that ability to be able to express in that particular modality as well Mm -hmm. as every other type of mind. I mean, you want the best for your child and you want them to be able to express their understanding and to communicate to others. And artistically, I think art is very cathartic, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what's so wonderful about music is that it has this affective modality. Mm -hmm. And so in my book, I talk a lot about the particularly... And I think this relates back to this, the what I was talking about earlier about this is your brain on music. <laughs> it's very complex there. And I talk about these three different learning modalities that when you're working with your child, you're, you're working in. And the affective modality is, to me, the most accessible for the youngest children. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what you, you mean know, by that is how does it make me feel? Right, right. And so when you play uh, fast music, and generally it's exciting and or happy. Mm -hmm. Slow music, 
is generally calming. Softer music is a little more intimate, brings the child in. And these are all biological aspects of music that create a lot of different affects. And it's that's just, just that one aspect. The affective modality of music is just absolutely fantastic. And then there's the temporal modality of music. So that's such a unique aspect because you're listening to a piece of music. And so it's new. And you're kind of remembering that, like twinkle, and then you get to (laughs) the next twinkle, twinkle. And you're kind of remembering that the first two twinkles happened. Now these next two twinkles are happening that you're thinking, oh, but now there's that star part. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, it's this evolving experience. It's a temporal modality within time that you're experiencing music. So you're experiencing the past, the present, and you're anticipating the future. Hmm. And it's one of the fantastic things that the brain is processing. It's almost like juggling multiple balls in the air at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons the brain is so stimulated, you know, and then, and beyond that, you know, that there's a complete song that there's going to be an end of a song, that the song will be over and you could do it again if you want. <laughs> we but do do it, it again, again many times. <laughs> and, and it had an end. So there's this temporal aspect of music that is just absolutely fascinating. And then the, the third modality is the spatial modality. And I think this one may be why some of the research that has shown that spatial reasoning on um, tests is often much higher after playing instruments or uh, musical interventions, classes and things like that. So spatial ability, what is that like imagining a cube, Mm -hmm. multiple sides in space or I don't know, what is your understanding of of the, you know, how that would benefit you Mm -hmm. uh, in in the real world? Oh, for sure. uh, Map reading, (laughs) all kinds of things. So in addition to that, that uh, holding music within the span of time, you're also holding it within space. Mm -hmm. So twinkle is a little bit lower in pitch. Twinkle is higher. And then little is just a little bit higher than that one. Mm -hmm. Star. And then how I wonder what you are is going down. So you've got this up and down that you're processing in the brain. And then how far up and how far down? Mm -hmm. Or is it the same? And then you add another tone. And then you've got not only that the relationship between one tone to another, but then you're bringing in harmony and, and then you're bringing in different instruments, a flute and a tuba and electric guitar, which brings different textures into it. So this kind of explains why the brain is like working overtime (laughs) when you're listening. It seems like such a, just a twinkle, twinkle star, Mm -hmm. you know, and, oh, and then let's do the, the motions the finger play with it. Mm-hmm. Now we're now we're using our modality for for movement, uh, our motor cortex and our sensory cortex, which is a huge part of the brain on both sides of the hemisphere of the brain. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on that really is happening mm-hmm. when you work with children musically. So yeah. and I go into more detail in the book with that. Yeah, just a little bit more. So I, I want to get to that. So the first half of the book is on kind of the research behind what's involved in music and how it affects children's development and also about the Reggio Emilia approach. And the whole second half of the book is a series of what are called studio proposals. And they show how children can respond, perform, create and connect with nine different qualities of music like dynamics and tempo and beat and rhythm. And these aren't so much lessons to be taught as examples of 
how a teacher can explore a topic with a child and it doesn't have to be a teacher it can be a parent and so I actually I tried one of them (laughs) yeah I did I uh my daughter one of my daughter's favorite books is called I Will Love You Anyway and it's about Mm -hmm. a dog who in conventional language we would probably say is not very good (laughs) it's not a good dog and it keeps running away and in the middle of the story there's a thunderstorm and I thought, a thunderstorm, that's a really dramatic thing. I wonder if there's music. I wonder if there's something in Wendell's book about thunderstorms. And it turns <laughs> out there is. <laughs> and so her birthday was recently. And so our preschool, which is Reggio-inspired, has a thing where the parents usually go in and do some kind of activity on the child's birthday. And so I looked up the piece of music that you recommend that has a, a piece in it that's about a thunderstorm, and it sounds like a thunderstorm. And we put a big piece of butcher paper down on the table that all the children sit around, and we played the music on a phone, and we just gave each child a crayon and said, what do you hear? Can you draw what you hear? And they start drawing these incredible dark squiggles for the clouds, and the music builds, and and I say, wow, it sounds like it's raining, and they all start going tap, 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 tap with the crayons Uh, on the paper. And the teachers are just sitting there absolutely gobsmacked. (laughs) And it was such a powerful, and I'm just sitting there with my eyes wide open thinking there's no way I could have predicted this would happen. And in your book, you sort of go beyond that and you extend it to, well, how we could do three or four different drawings within the piece of music and we could actually arrange them as a piece of music. And one of the teachers said, you know, I, I would totally go back and do that again with a smaller group sometime. And so, you know, if, if parents are listening to this thinking, I don't know anything about music, I don't know if I can do this. All it takes is looking up a piece of music on YouTube and Mm -hmm. Wendell gives you these prompts for ways that you can engage a a child and ask them questions and find out what they're thinking about it. And you don't have to know everything or even very much (laughs) to make this incredibly successful. So I guess this is sort of a a little infomercial for your book. Thank you. (laughs) But it it was a powerful example for for me. (laughs) That's wonderful. And I have um, some examples of popular children's books and ways you can incorporate Hmm. music into that. Okay. Uh, Were they in the book and I don't remember them or can you share them with us? They're in the book. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. And so what what should parents look for? Like, you know, like if you're talking about tempo, there's some uh, books about, you know, the tortoise and the hare or clocks. Uh, If you're talking about the beat, there's lots of things about clocks and things like that. Yeah, I I loaned my book to the preschool, so I don't have it right now. (laughs) But yeah, my daughter's really interested in clocks as well and uh, is starting the the rudimentary elements of telling a time. So I bet she'd be super interested in that. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the main point for the parents is that this is a socially constructed approach. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the kids are so self-absorbed in coloring or whatever they'll sit by themselves for hours and color and Mm -hmm. draw and stuff and I I would encourage you not to do that with the music I mean I think it's great to to let the kids listen to music of Mm -hmm. course but uh, to really have the most learning the parents should be playing alongside them and Mm -hmm. interacting and not not just say here sit here and listen and do this on your own. Yeah. It really is about a social experience. Yeah. So I can see this being so, so relevant as children are younger and don't necessarily have, you know, maybe the kind of coordination to play formal instruments in a formal way. And I'm wondering how this kind of shifts over time as they get older and as they start becoming interested in in playing an instrument well. And I'm thinking about how the art teachers in Reggio Emilia will teach a child to use slip, which is like a wet 
form of clay to bind two pieces of clay together so that the children can broaden the repertoire of things that they can make using clay. And that seems sort of similar to teaching a child how to read music and play notes correctly, except that with clay, you sort of have this two minute, you know, here's how you wet the clay, here's how you stick it together. (laughs) And then you get the whole world of opportunities. But in music, it's sort of, it seems to be a very time consuming process (laughs) where you get an hour of lesson and then endless practice. And then maybe you can play something that you are really interested in. So how can you apply this constructivist approach or can you, as the child gets older and becomes really interested in deepening their knowledge and skill with an instrument? Right. Like we discussed earlier, that is the old fashioned Mm-hmm. Yeah. Old school way. Yeah. But I would say you can do the practice and instill creativity at the same time. So let's let's go with Twinkle Twinkle. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, while um, we're at it. <laughs> while we're at it. Okay. So, I mean, the old school way would be, say, the child has a violin and they're... <laughs> no, I can play that. Do it again. Okay, whatever. So yeah. over and over and over yeah. until it's perfect. But let's say instead you, you show them how to play Twinkle twinkle on whatever instrument it is and then you you don't keep practicing that mm-hmm. <laughs> twinkle twinkle over and over you use that as a template so then you might say hey you know you just learned how to play twinkle twinkle what other song could we learn you know and then they you know the wheels of the bus okay mm. so see let's see if you can find that on there and then so then they use that and then you can use the template well they, they learned how to play twinkle twinkle maybe not perfectly Mm-hmm. But then you might say, oh, so twinkle, twinkle. Oh, that was that was a big distance. Or was that a small distance? Oh, it was a big one. Okay, well, let's try it out. And then, you know, they would trial and error and they'd figure out the wheels of the bus. As far, and they'd learn, maybe they wouldn't learn the wheels of the bus, but they would learn about directionality in a melody that it kind of goes up and down like a roller coaster as they're figuring at, that out on their instrument. And then you might say, oh, well would you like to make up your own song? You know, we don't have to just play songs we already know. Mm. What should we make a song about? So I would say that's a more constructivist approach. You can start with Twinkle Twinkle, but you don't want to stay there Mm -hmm. (laughs) until it's perfect. You just want to expand in in different directions that the the child is interested in. Yeah. And like we said, I think that this approaching notes for preschool, I really believe that it's such a, a wonderful, powerful approach, even though it's slow slower education. We always want, mm-hmm. we want uh, to know right away what is the benefit. <laughs> yeah. And the Reggie approach is slow education. It, it really is. Mm. But I believe these constructivist approaches can go on through middle school and even through high school. And I even have, the, my last chapter talks about how you could use constructivist approaches in music classes in mm-hmm. middle and high school. Mm. So just bringing it full circle, I guess, back to the research, I, I know that research has shown that there are some benefits to a child's development as a result of participating in music, not just listening to Mozart. But the vast majority of the research on this topic seems to achieve those findings by dividing children into two groups and giving both groups an intelligence test and then providing one of them with music instruction for 20 minutes a week and then giving them another intelligence test and seeing if the two groups are different. And I'm curious as to whether children might see the same kinds of benefits using a Reggio-based approach, where they aren't really so much directly shown how to play an instrument. They, they do a lot more figuring out for themselves. But then sort of following on from that, I'm wondering, should we care about such a reductive approach to understanding something as holistic as a child's experience of music? What do you think? Well, that's a good question. And that's always talked about in my field, you know, shouldn't music just be for our music's sake? 
art for art's sake? You know, mm. why do we always have to have it in the service of better mathematical intelligence or, you know, so they don't cut our budget ability? <laughs> or, right, exactly. And so, you know, why can't we just enjoy the aesthetic aspects? Because it's beautiful. Mm. It's a part mm. of being human, you yeah. know. But all of these approaches, I mean, all these subject areas can be considered beautiful, right? And that's what the Reggio approach is all about. It says the art shouldn't be compartmentalized as this aesthetic approach, and math shouldn't be considered a hard learning area. I mean, now what is it that STEM versus STEAM debate, right? (laughs) And the Reggio approach would say, you know, everything should be arts. Look at math like it is an art. Look Mm -hmm. at everything as an art. And the ateliers might be in Reggio, you know, might be doing regular academic learning, but they do it in an aesthetic and beautiful way. So yeah, Via Vecchi, who's the, the main atelierista for the Regia School, she said, boundaries are as thin as smoke, is what she mm. she says. And she says, you know, you can't, it's, it all should be beautiful and it should all be incredibly meaningful and academic at the same time. So yeah, I mean, we're used to the reductionistic approach, you know, mm-hmm. what if I do this, I get this result. Yep. So I would say you get both. It's aesthetic and it's hardcore learning. All right. And on that note, we shall leave it today. Thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation. I'm so honored that we got the chance to learn from you. Oh, thank you. It's been a delight. So Dr. Hannah's book, The Children's Music Studio, a Reggio-inspired approach can be purchased on Amazon. And you can also learn a lot more about the book before you buy it by visiting reggiomusic.com, where you can follow Wendell's blog. Her latest post was actually a comparison of the Montessori, Waldorf, and Reggio approaches to music. And as always, the usual references for the show can be found at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash music. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and sign up for our mailing list at yourparentingmojo.com to receive a free gift. Seven relationship-based strategies to support your children's development while making parenting just a little bit easier on you. For more respectful, research-based parenting ideas to help kids thrive, we'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.